Welcome to the Grace Story Podcast, where inspiring stories are brought to life. This podcast is made possible by Grace College and Seminary, located on the shores of Winona Lake in the great state of Indiana. I'm your host, Dr. Drew Flam. Today I have my new friend, Dr. Freddie Cardoza with me. Dr. Cardoza started on January 1 as the Dean of the Seminary here at Grace College and Theological Seminary. He came to Grace after serving 10 years at Talbot School of Theology and Biola University as the Chair of the Christian Education Programs. He concurrently served as the Executive Director of the Society of Professors in Christian Education an academic society serving ministry professors in 150 colleges and seminaries. Dr. Cardoza, welcome to the first episode of the Grace Story Podcast. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, I, I got to ask the question after that intro right there. What in the world brought you from sunny California to <laughs> snowy Indiana on January 1st? Oh, man. Jesus, right? <laughs> um, you know... It's an amazing thing. My wife actually has some roots up in northern Indiana, and she spent a third of her life in the Midwest, and that included northwest Indiana and Chicagoland and Cleveland. And so then we were in Southern California, as you know. There's amazing things happening at Grace. They're innovative, genuinely innovative, not, not talk, but action. And so those things going on here the advances that are being made in all kinds of educational areas, the vision of the president, the, the just the infrastructure, everything is in place for great success. And I was so thrilled that the Lord led me here. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, I've read a little bit of your story and background. Um, so take me back to your, you know, even childhood and growing up years and, and how you came to saving faith in Christ and, and then ended up in ministry. Yeah. So my mom was one of eight children who was born into a very, very, very poor family in the deep South. And she was, you've heard of uh, the old TV show, The Dukes of Hazard, right? Yes, yes. Well, about 45 minutes or an hour from The Dukes of Hazard is where we grew up. Wow. The, the Appalachian Hills there, uh, close to the Smoky Mountains. It's a part of the Smoky Mountains, basically. And so we grew up there. And what happened, though, was mom was born in a massive family. Her father had a lot of problems with moonshining and all kinds of other nefarious activities. And, and finally they just, it fell apart that family. And so mom then ultimately went up to the air force, met a Portuguese, Spanish slash other things, uh, gentlemen, they married, they had twins Frederick and Theodore, which is Frederick uh, and Theodore, Freddie and Teddy. <laughs> oh, boy, right? And, uh, and so then um, that marriage ultimately fell apart. She came back down to Tennessee. And then Teddy and I were raised in this, you know, challenging environment, the only minorities in a very wide area. In wow. fact, that, that county is still over 99%, mm. um, you know, Anglo, you know, so it's a very unique place. But anyway, so we, we were raised in that, and you can imagine the struggles there, and raised in, in genuine, I mean, very strong poverty. You know, we, we uh, until I was, until the 1970s, probably 1975, we didn't have running water in our home and wow. stuff. And you could look down into the little cracks of the house. It was, the old, it was like an old country house that ended up getting condemned by the state. But anyway, you could look down the cracks and see the dust, the dirt underneath and everything, and and then finally, um, it got condemned, and and then uh, we went to the projects and stuff. And then um, 
a year later, my grandma and the uncle and mom all went together and bought a single wide trailer. And all six of us moved in this little three, three bedroom single wide. And, and, you know, here we go. So anyway, it was a very interesting thing. And mom ultimately got remarried. So mom was a secretary at a, you know, like a national park and a labor union. And then, um, my stepdad was a coal truck driver and you know, and then that that led to my uh, adolescent time. So you you grew up in that kind of environment, but yet um, education obviously mm-hmm. has been a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that instilled in you in a at a young age, or how did how did you come to love learning? Yeah, so you know, um, I you know, no one in my family had education. You know, at that time, you know, now since. Then and I've gone to get some schooling and some other people in my family got in schooling so that's great, but at that time no I mean, you gotta understand no one had any schooling hmm. you know except for maybe a little night school uh, you know what do you call it? you know like Votech kind of thing you know but you know we um, no what happened was I knew that um, I knew something had to change you know I, I knew that times were rough you know a lot of people will say. You know, when I was growing up, we were poor, but we didn't know we were poor. Oh, listen, we knew we were poor, okay? No one let us forget we were poor, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, No, You know, when, you, when you're in that situation, you know you're poor. Uh, and um, when, when you go to a store and the biggest excitement for you at the store is that you get to use an actual toilet and not an outhouse, you know it's, yeah. you know. So, but you know, um, I think that I... At school, you'd every now and then hear like, hey, education's a way out and all that kind of thing. And I just think that that started making sense. And then this sounds really, really funny, but two things. One is that I I started in the scouting organization because, you know, there was a point where I didn't have a man in my life. And, uh, you know, at the point I didn't have a father. And, you know, I just needed – mom wanted me to have that kind of influence. And so she put me in scouting, and it became a very important thing in my life. And then in addition to that – this is so funny, but one summer some guys come and knock on the door where we lived, and they were selling dictionaries and encyclopedias. You know how that used to be, the old right. world book. Oh, yeah, right? that was big back in the day. And I just begged Mom to get them, you know what I mean? I was like, because I was like, hey, this is great, because I just saw these crazy great pictures and stuff. Well, Mom did, and then, you know, they sat around the house for about a month, and Mom's like, we couldn't afford these dictionaries, guys, and these, uh, you know, world book you guys wanted. And <laughs> so my twin brother never cracked one open you know what I'm saying but but uh you know we're in rural Tennessee man there's not a lot to do and what we did was I um I would get up early in the morning on Saturday there was not really much to do at that point and I would start just reading through encyclopedias because that was you know and so anyway that that just and I read some through the dictionaries you know that's different reading because it's not really it's not really prose you know what I'm saying sure sure but but that. Expanded. But I really can't think of a nerdier thing to do. Yeah, than get true, up right? on Saturday morning and read I, the dictionary. I know. So, I mean, yeah, I did. You know, but <laughs> so so I think the dictionary helped me with vocabulary, and etymology and things. And I think that the encyclopedia. And this is something I I don't know if I've even told him, ever even said anything like this. But but it, that's what happened, and that's what I did. And and so I think that uh, encyclopedia it just gave me a broad understanding of a lot of things and, and it instilled in me a love of learning and then that plus a discipleship experience later on after I became a believer some years later I think that led to a great interest in learning and so that was the story behind that well, I read a little bit about how you came to Christ and mm-hmm. a fascinating story and I'd love mm-hmm. to dive deeper to really hear where and when you had the opportunity to hear from Mm-hmm. NFL great Reggie White and oh, um, and come come to know Christ. Yeah, so it was interesting because so 
my mom, when I was a child, her mom, who is a beloved, beloved woman, a Christian, but, you know, like all country, poor country people, you know, had it tough. But she was like a charter member of this tiny church, you know, there in that town of 300, you know. Um, I don't know. I don't even think it had a street light, to be honest with you. It was, you know, really rural. And um, so she uh, she got us up when we were early, early in childhood and would take us to church. But then when mom remarried, you know, it wasn't that way. And um, so we didn't go to church except for maybe on a Mother's Day, you know what I mean? And so anyway, for years we didn't go to church. But then I was in football. And so our coach who was, you know, sort of a God and country kind of coach, you know what I'm saying? You know, we love God, we love country. Let's say the Lord's Prayer before football. You know, it was like that kind of thing. And so someone from the church came and said, we've got a special speaker at this church tonight. And they said, this is Reggie White, who happened to play at the time for the University of Tennessee, but then became the great USFL great and the the NFL great, as you know, from the from the Eagles and then Green Bay. And it was just amazing. So, but he was big time, big time even then. And then he and also another pro football player to be Willie Galt, who also was quite well known. Mm. So they came and, and I said, yeah, I'll go to church to hear this guy and they have pizza. I'm in, you know, so... I was, you know, a regular teenage kid. So I go there that night. I'm on the, I think, the next to last row. And this guy preaches the gospel. And honestly, it was the first time in my life that I think I heard the gospel. I mean, the second I heard him say the gospel, as soon as he said it, I'm like, that is the truth. What that guy just said, in my heart, I knew it was true. And so he said, you have to repent and believe. And even though I grew up in a challenging situation, it wasn't that I was making tons of, quote, bad decisions. I was just lost. You know what I'm saying? I was, I I needed a savior, but I I was just lost. I wasn't a bad kid. And um, so I I remember sitting back there and and almost like you hear, I mean, almost the white knuckle. I I wasn't afraid to decide. I, I think I felt afraid of this public altar call. You know what I mean? Old school. And I was just like, this is real. I was was just so afraid. And then he says, you know what? You just need to make your own decision, be your own man. And and I just, all I remember is the second I let go of the back of the pew, I felt like I was literally physically carried to the front. Next thing I know, I blink my eyes and I'm standing in front of this mountain of a man. I mean, Reggie White, the hero of heroes, you know, number 92. And he personally led me to Christ. And the second I said, in that case, the sinner's prayer, I know everyone doesn't say the sinner's prayer. I did. And as I did, I, even though I was a little bit confused, I didn't all the know the next steps of faith, but I knew that I was sincere. And I knew from that instant, I knew that I was the Lord's. And honestly, never one time since that moment have I ever had any doubt in my salvation because it was so crystal clear. And I think that, by the way, I think that was a very important part of my spiritual development. And then uh, 10 days, that was in September 1982. And then just a few, uh, I think it was 10 days later, I was baptized. Hmm. And then shortly thereafter that, a single lady who had, you know, had a lot of hard times uh, through her mistreatment by her husband she was sort of feeling dejected and everything, uh, but was a committed Christian. Well, she took me and another 
boy from a broken home because she felt like she was sort of a, a, a toss away, a castaway, right? And she knew that me and another young man, you know, needed probably someone in their life. And she, not just me, because, you know, didn't want any impropriety. She took me and another young friend of mine who was a new believer, and we rode around in her old Subaru, and she basically taught us to drive, and she discipled us every Saturday from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., every Saturday for two years. And then she handed us off to a part-time pastor, youth pastor that came into town, said, you know, I finished, I can't do any more. These guys have gone. And so she gave us then to the youth pastor part-time. And it's, it's very important, you know, it's like to know wow. that, right? As a part-time guy. And he just started discipling us, helping us start learn scripture. And then from there, you know, I started to figure it out. Reggie White and the old lady. You better That's believe amazing. it. You better believe it. So from from there, you you uh, you graduate high school. Um, when did you feel the call to ministry? Well, it was very clear. I had gone through scouting, and and then I'd reached my my Eagle Scout, and I actually thought because of how these people pouring into my life had literally made all the difference in the world. I mean, I, I don't even know where I would possibly be without some kind of leadership in my life. You understand that? And this is no disrespect meant to my family or my extended family. Um, but, you know, my father was not in my life at that time. And, and you know, I'd seen him twice in my life, I think. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, you know, there was no relationship whatsoever. And I, I had, you know, it was a tough, tough go. And I, th- I, think, um, I think what happened was along the way, as I became more and more committed in my faith, I realized, you know, scouting is fantastic. It's been so important to me. And I thought it was going to be like a professional scout. I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I thought it was going to be like, you know, Sir Baden-Powell part two, you know what I'm saying? The, the man that brought, you know, scouting to the United States in 1910, 1920. But then the Lord began to work with me and said, you know, you need to pour your life into others. You're right about that part, but you need to do it for the gospel. And about age 15 to 16, I started wrestling through that. And at age 16, I remember I, I responded to a call to the ministry, and at that time, I presented myself to the church and let them know that that I felt the Lord was leading me to some kind of vocational, ministerial, pastoral service, and and that's when it started. And then that actually led to what I would call an even more rigorous kind of discipleship process, which, by the way, was not it was not known at that time. It wasn't like everyone was being discipled. I mean, it just happened that that people. I think they saw my plight. I mean, I was a I was, you know, an interesting kid that needed some help, you know what I mean? And I just think that people just decided to step in. And when I understood my call, I then had actually pastoral level people step in and say, okay, we got to invest some time in this kid. And, and you know, I've got names that I could list of people that started to do that and, and provided help and support for me. And then, so at age 16, I did that. And by the time I graduated at 18, I had a very clear understanding of what I needed to do. And then that's when I went off to college. And did you then attend college for the purpose of ministry training? I did. I never looked back. So um, I researched and found that one of the best youth ministry programs at the time, because I thought, you know, where do you start, right? You're a youth minister. So I went to do a youth ministry program. I started, I also did the University of Tennessee at first for, you know, I did a year of University of Tennessee because I wanted to be in the UT band, the Pride of the Southland, Rocky oh, Top, you know man. what I'm talking about, okay? Sorry for all those I'm OSU I'm a Big fans. Ten guy here, and we're I know, in Big right? Ten country, so OSU, I don't know. OSU, Michigan, I know, right? Michigan State, but... But I was there at Rocky Top, and but then I went to Liberty University, and on campus there, met my 
to be wife there, but enrolled in the church ministries program with youth ministry, bachelor's program, did that, and then uh, it was specifically for that, and then went on to master's and beyond, obviously, you know. Sure, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to know a little bit about, especially um, your doctorate, mm-hmm. kind of what you studied, your specialty, mm-hmm. um, sort of what your emphasis, you know, you, you, since reading those encyclopedias, mm-hmm. how you've moved on and uh, mm-hmm. what your academic interests are now. Yeah, well, it, it may be the case, quite frankly, that the um, that the encyclopedic uh, kind of training, I mean, it, it it spread my mind open. I mean, it opened up a, a world, a wide world of knowledge. And I think that that did give me what you might call almost more of a liberal arts perspective. In other words, I had a, a very broad, you know, exposure to lots of fields. And I was interested by that. And and whereas divinity is a little more of a, a very narrow field in Bible and theology, the arts tend to be a lot more things about Bible and theology, but also Things in you know communication and leadership and, and those kind of things, learning and educational psychology sure. and stuff. So I was drawn a little bit more to that. Plus, my commitment because of my growing up, Drew, was was more about the discipleship process. Okay, so because some people would think, oh, well, Freddie would naturally become a pastor or a senior pastor, right? A lead pastor, he would be the preaching pastor. I enjoy preaching, but my passion is helping disciple people because that's what happened to me and that's what made the difference uh the pulpit certainly ministered to me the pulpit is indispensable but discipleship is what really helped me and and that those programs tend to be in the arts side the master of arts side most of the time so what i did was i did my master of arts in a seminary and then after that i went on to my doctorate and i i did two programs i did the phd in leadership which is focused on higher education professorial teaching and those kinds of things. And then I also did an EDD program, Doctor of Education, both are research doctorates, but different emphases. And I did that one in Christian education, discipleship, and ministry. Now, I only did one dissertation because I ran out of time because I was I was in school forever. I almost have like a hundred. I did doc- one dissertation, and I will never do another one, <laughs> exactly. so I understand. Yeah, one dissertation is enough, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, one, one dissertation may be too much, but anyway. But I um, So I have almost a hundred doctoral hours, you know, and so, uh, but I reached the statute of limitations because doing both those programs, I did not have time to do a second uh, dissertation, you know, so I ran out of time. So I ended up PhD in leadership and ABD, all but dissertation uh, on my doctor of education. But so my background is essentially higher education administration, professorial teaching, and then discipleship ministry, church leadership. It's a really fascinating to hear your your story from, you know, uh, really Appalachia. Yeah. Um, uh, and then you spent the last you know ten years in L.A. Right. Uh, I mean, you really can't get <laughs> more different um, than that. So t- tell me, last ten years you've been at, at Talbot. You you know you you've got. Uh, you were overseeing a lot of different stuff. So tell me about the last 10 years. I know you were involved at Saddleback as well and just your ministry out there in L.A. Yeah, right. Well, it was hard to transition to Orange County, L.A. because I worked in L.A. County, lived in Orange County. It was hard because, you know, out there you got all these people who speak all these different languages. I always tell people, you know, if you, if you speak four languages, you're polyglot. Three <laughs> languages, you're trilingual. Two languages, you're bilingual. 
one language, you're American. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, and if you speak marginal English, you're from Tennessee. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so I get out there and my, my draw, man, you got to understand, right? I mean, if you hear any draw in my voice, it was even worse 10 years oh, ago. Oh, right? my. So, I mean, it was so bad. You couldn't understand me. But so I get out there and it was, I was obviously not from there. But, um, but I wanted to be on the edge of culture. I wanted to be in the middle of one of the great cities of our time that was making a great impact as the world becomes more urbanized. Um, my dissertation, even though I did the subjects you heard about on my PhD, my dissertation actually focused on leadership, but I was especially leadership in church in urban church ministry because churches in the world is becoming increasingly urbanized, and I wanted to understand that. So I, I began to to do ministry in cities like Chicago and then ultimately L.A. But anyway, so so I get there, and my role at Talbot School of Theology and Biola University, those are just like Grace is organized, is how they're organized. Grace College has the undergrad side with all its schools, and then it has a seminary on top in graduate schools, and that's exactly the way it's organized there. When people hear Biola University and Talbot, they I don't know what they think, but it's, it's they're, they're just one institution right. effectively, yep, yep. right? So anyway, so I go there and I lead the Christian education programs and we have there what many people consider, if not the best, one of the best research doctoral programs, EDD and PhD programs in educational leadership that exists in evangelicalism. Um, 50%, 40% are, are international. The best of the best come from around the world there. I helped oversee, I mean, I oversaw that program, the Master of Arts and Master of Divinity in Christian Education, and then the Bachelor of Arts in Christian Ministry, so all the undergrad students, ministry students. And then uh, with that, before long, I was in the office of the provost, and I led there all of our online studies, all the online programs, digital learning, and also instructional services. So the, the 125 classrooms we had, all the technology in the classrooms, and also not all, but a lot of the faculty training related to technology, I would do, you know, I would either coordinate or help with some of that. And, and I was in, you know, I would lead committees that had to do with, you know, technology and things like that. Well, and just getting to know yeah. you a little bit, the technology side is, is really big to you. And, and mm -hmm. I think that interfaces with mm -hmm. your passion for culture. Where, when mm -hmm. did the technology yeah. bug hit you? And, mm -hmm. and uh, you, yeah. how did you get engaged there? Well, it especially came to the fore in Orange County because, you know, you're there in the, you know, in L.A., Orange County. It's it's just it's everywhere. Right? An amazing. It's just, yeah. yeah, it's it's an unbelievable place as far as entertainment and, and culture and technology because you're there. Silicon Valley, of course, is to the north, sure. but they, they call that just the corridor. And that corridor of 24 million people is just busting with technology and everything. And I, and I started to realize that. Christian leaders must leverage technology for the advance of the kingdom of God. They have to exploit it in every conceivable way and, uh, so it doesn't exploit us. You know what I'm saying? Sure. We exploit it for the kingdom. And so that led to my interest in it. So I began to learn. I mean, I'm still not good at HTML, but I, I tried to learn a little <laughs> bit about web design. And then I learned about video and podcasting and you know, obviously computers and, and all kinds of other things in between. And began to try to build that. And then I said, how can I leverage these tools to cultivate opportunities for discipleship and ministry? And then as I spoke at places and did things, I began to deploy those online. And so then the reach that you have, that plus social media, 
the reach begins to be greater, and then that adds to your influence, you know, as a thought leader. And so those became very important to me. And since I was working in digital learning and I was working in instructional technology, I was able to go to all the great conferences about how do we leverage these things. And as you can imagine, that that really helped me. I remember seeing your uh, resume when you uh, applied to Grace mm -hmm. and um, your virtual resume, mm -hmm. I should say. Mm -hmm. um, and it was by far the most extensive and um, attractive resume. I mean, you had videos, you had audio, you had pictures. And so I see that passion mm -hmm. come on. You have your own, you have your own podcast, right? You have two podcasts. I have Podcast Seminary and I have Fred Talks. Talks. Not, not to be like confused that. with TED Talks. Ah, okay. I see the play there. Yeah, well done. Nice. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Ex exploit TED Talks. Don't let TED Talks exploit you, right? Exactly. Kind of you got it. There? Okay. <laughs> so you've uh, you've been here now a couple months. That's right. Um, started, I think, to at least get your your feet on the ground and tell me tell me what you're seeing at at Grace Theological mm -hmm. Seminary. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your vision for the future? Mm -hmm. What are you excited mm -hmm. about? Well, first of all, when you go to an institution, you have to have support. Uh, no one can do anything. There is no I in team, right? So it takes a team effort. And what I've found, for starters, is that there is tremendous goodwill toward the seminary and toward myself. There is absolute unflinching support in every way. And so I'm getting the support I need. I'm getting the resources I need. I'm getting, you know, a lot of times when you go into an organization, I think that a lot of people that are in leadership roles, they like having excuses about why they can't perform. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it takes us off the hook. It's like, well, I can't, I'm not successful because of this. And I've said, listen, if I'm not successful because I can't lead, because I have everything that I need given to me to help be effective. So that's an incredible blessing. And so the support of the administration, the support of all the various teams and departments, including yours, and, and the provost, obviously, and the president, so it's incredible that way. And, of course, my team here at the seminary and the School of Ministry Studies. So, so I have that, and our vision is multifold, but, I mean, it's, it's first of all, we will advance the gospel through biblical fidelity, and we will not budge an inch on our commitments theologically, of course. And so... You know, the Jude 3 talks about that we should contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so we must champion that gospel, especially in a day when so many institutions are, they, they've lost their mooring, they, they're unanchored, they're twisting in the wind, you know, and so we, we can't go there. And I think that a voice of, of conviction in these times will, I think, resonate with people and God's people and Bible people. And I think they will find their way here. One of the things about that is that the innovation here is so profound. I mean, the question is, you know, yes, we have product, we have theological education, we have ministerial preparation. By the way, there's two things, right? It's not just theological education. It's also ministry preparation. So it's not just filling your head with things. It's how do you know how to do great ministry? And so that's one of the great things about our team is we, the school has hired people in a way that we have both of those emphases. So it's not just, you know, egghead kind of academic stuff. It's it's strongly in that way. We have, yes, scholarship going on. i got a new book coming out myself here in just a few months. So, yes, we've got scholarship going on. But in addition to that, it's very practical for the church. So so the, the thing is we have delivery methods. And so it's the, it's the deploy program and its ability to deliver on-site at the church. We've got 
traditional online programs. We've got on-campus programs. So there's any number of ways that a person can get these delivery methods. And so the question for us is, is, okay, how do we provide faithful, biblical equipping for people using all these various delivery methods to the people? And then in addition to that, we want to pl- make this place a place of great human flourishing. It's, it's, it needs to be a place where the most healthy and happy and whole and holy people you know are graduating out of here, that people see a grace graduate. They say, this is a distinctive person. This person is dynamic. They understand what walking in the Spirit is. They, they clearly have God's anointing on their life because they have somehow been changed in the community. That is grace, right? And so we're trying to foster that kind of community. So that is important. That's that's critical. Um, in addition to all those things, you know, we're obviously wanting to partner with the greatest and most innovative ministries of our time. Now, the thing is, some of those will be massive. You know, you mentioned Saddleback. You know, so I spent, you know, 10 years at Saddleback. I was at both the main church, only a few miles away from there, but also in the satellite churches, that is the, the you know, the smaller churches. So I spent most of my time in, a, in the 2,000-person one, which was Irvine South, just outside of Newport, Newport Beach. And so I led the discipleship program there as a lay person. You know, I led the lay side of it for about seven years, I think, or something like that. So deeply involved in men's ministry and retreats and discipleship and and all, you know, discipleship classes and so on and so forth. But the thing is that that we need here with these resources and with this deploy program, we need to take seminary back to the churches through that program. And we, of course, have uh, an accelerated program as well where you can, the person can get uh, undergraduate and a master's degree in four to five years, which is right. unbelievable. Right. Okay. I mean, Absolutely. It's, it's unbelievable. The, Thank the you. Money, shout out to the Kern Foundation. Shout out right? to the Kern Foundation. <laughs> I mean, that helps make this possible. And, and really challenge us to do it, too. I mean, addition, their vision in addition to their help. And it's amazing that way. And so we have students that's growing leaps and bounds, as you know. And so we're thrilled about that and the support they've given us. Um, and then, um, you know, we also have other things like the Grace Brethren you know, Investment Foundation, who who has provided resources to students that are going to ministry. To, right. so, so, I mean, we have this collective of people in this commonwealth of love and grace that are providing these kinds of resources. And so we want to innovate and to reach these great ministries. And I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to, I want to be careful about how I say it, but, but even very, very, very recently we had a, a, an amazing church that just came on board with us just now. Uh, that's, it's being finalized as we speak and another amazing, powerful ministry that's going to be partnering with us in the deploy program. And so it's just an exciting time that way. So that's another thing. And then one more thing I would add would be my vision to help make sure that grace takes its place at the seat of influence among other evangelical seminaries. And to do that, you have to be there. You have to show up and you have to have something to say and you have to have a voice. And so we're positioning ourselves to be the places where Great thinking is happening where great dialogues are happening on the forefront of those things. And because of the innovation we're showing with things like Deploy and with the Accelerated Program and the Kern Foundation, and of course what we're trying to do residentially, right? As we're doing all these kinds of things, we are meeting with, as I meet with deans and provosts of these institutions, uh, we they are seeing that what we're doing here is it's a fresh day and it's a very dynamic and exciting time. And 
clearly God's working and he's blessing. So that's at least a picture of where we're trying to go here right now. I'm going to dig a little bit in on uh, Deploy because uh, you know, there's some really unique aspects that I've learned about. I mean, it's it's the only one that is accredited and exists in the United States. Um, and, and it's different in its focus where, like you said, we're bringing on a church. It's church-focused mm, right. more than individual-focused, and it's competency-based. Mm, talk, right. talk to me about what in the world is competency-based, right. and, and, and why are we pursuing churches instead of mm, people? Sure. So uh, I would start by clarifying so people understand that that there are different types of accreditation, and accreditation is essentially where you prove and you demonstrate that your education is valid, valuable, and is genuinely uh, something that transforms students. So we have, as you said, accreditations. It's the only one with dual accreditation, both regional accreditation. That means Department of Education recognized, okay? It's the gold standard that the government itself says what you're doing is equal to any other school as far as it meets the minimum and above standards for anyone so you can transfer credits. So if a person goes here and goes to doctoral program elsewhere, it's automatically accepted. So that's great. Beyond that, there's also seminary level accreditation, which ours is the Association of Theological Schools, ATS. And ours is the only program that has both of those. That's important to know. Now, in addition to that, the idea behind Deploy is, and this is important for listeners to hear, we don't want, some people need to study in residence, okay? And that's important. And some people need to study online. We want all these delivery methods. We, we don't want to force people to choose. It's, it's both and. It's yes and yes. But one of the problems that some church leaders have said, they said, look, in, in some areas where maybe we'll put a consortium of churches together where a lot of small churches that are innovative will band together and form a partnership with Deploy with us, and they will have together a collective where students can learn together, even though they're a smaller area. See, those small churches that want to partner with us, they're like, look, we can't afford to lose our best lay leaders and and young men and women and, and seasoned men and women who are serving in these roles in our church, we can't afford to send them away in residence to your school for four, five, six years, right? We, we can't Absolutely. lose them. On the other hand, big churches and really big innovative churches are look, they're like, look, we have got a system here. We've got, we know what we're doing and we're being very, very intentional about what we're doing. Well, so they don't want to lose their people because they have a system. Well, what we believe is, and through the work of deploys, you know, and the listener may not know, is that the school went to over a hundred pastors that were innovative and understand ministry and said, what does it take to be successful in ministry? They came back on the Master of Arts side with 15 competencies that everyone should have. Things that you need to know how to do, uh, things you need to know, things you competencies you need to have in various areas. And then they said, and we'll have 18 on the Master Divinity side. So, so those became the essence of this degree. And then the churches, basically what we do is we, like you said, we don't go to just people, we go to churches. And so we partner with churches, and a church literally could right now be hearing us go, well, now wait, what's this? Deploy? <laughs> they could actually right now be listening and literally go online to grace.edu or grace.edu slash seminary and say, tell me about Deploy. It's that simple. And so essentially what happens, though, is they say, we want 
the expertise of 100% of the full-time faculty of grace with PhDs, okay, we want that in our church. We want that training. So we want them to give us theological training, but we're in a context here. We, we're in a certain culture. We have a church culture, and we've been successful at it, and God's blessed it. We want to keep that DNA. Now, we need your theology, and you know what? We even need some of your theory behind your ministry, right, as far as ministry preparation, like the, uh, like the psychology of learning or, or developmental psychology to help understand about how to do youth ministry, children's ministry better. But, but at the same time, we know some things, right? So what we do with them is we say, train your students in the way you like in real-life ministry. Embed your DNA, the things that made you successful, embed them into those students. And then what we do, we say, okay, how do we know whether a student has been transformed in their minds, in their heart, in their abilities and behaviors, in their skills? And they would say, you have every student in Deploy has an academic mentor. Every student has a spiritual formation mentor. Every student has a ministry mentor. And when the academic mentor says, in this competency, one of 15 or one of 18, depending on the degree you take, when they say you have demonstrated, for example, you know how to preach or at our level, or you know how to disciple people, or you know how to administer these kinds of programs administratively or whatever the skill happens to be, when the academic signs off on it, when the ministry mentor signs off on it, and then when the spiritual formation mentor says, you know what, in addition to that, you are demonstrating, displaying the kinds of character qualities, the kind of temperament, the kind of attitude, the kind of motivations, all the inward heart stuff. In other words, they have been truly transformed, like in their minds, in their heart, and in their lifestyle, and in their skills. When they all sign off on it, then you then move to the next competency. And so basically what it is at the end of the day, if someone said, what does the ploy do? It does this. It means that every student that graduates from this program knows how to do the job and knows the content they need and has the temperament and character they need because all these leaders signed off on it. And it's in that way, absolutely unique. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, and, and I've heard you say this and, and others, and it, it helped me understand the competency-based part um, where, you know, in a traditional classroom, you, you have a certain amount of time to to learn. Yeah. And, and so you have 16 weeks, and you learn as much as you can in 16 weeks. So the time is the constant, and, mm -hmm. and the learning is the variable. And, and, we, and you've sort of flipped that on its head yeah. and said, no, learning is the constant. Here's what you got to learn. We don't really care how long it takes. For yeah. some of you, it may take a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. For some, it may take a lot longer. It's a competency. And so you flip those um, time constants and learning mm -hmm. variable to, to make learning the constant and time the variable. Exactly. Because let's say someone's listening and they said, you know, uh, I'm not sure if seminary is for me because, you know, I've been doing this a while. Okay. And, and I, yeah, I have some holes in my knowledge. There's some competencies I need. But, you know, I, I've done this a long time. And I don't want to waste my time. Well, see, for that kind of person, that's exactly who we're talking about because, see, if, if they do have competency, as you've already said, they would move through those competencies extremely quickly because they can demonstrate those. So they, in other words, it does not penalize you for having skills and competencies. It actually advantages you and helps you move quicker. 
Then on the other hand, if a person says, you know what, um, you know, I want to be good at speaking or I want to be good at teaching. As you said, the problem in traditional education is at the end of a semester, whether you made it now, just think about this, whether you made a D or whether you made an A, you move on, right? So you may be below average, right? Almost unsatisfactory and still get through and you get the same degree at the end as everybody else, right? Even though you may be weak in that area. But here, as you said, the constant is learning. And so now what we say is, no, you will not move forward until you have it. So if it takes you longer, no problem. But the thing is, you're going to know what you need to know at the end as opposed to not. And so that's exactly the the, the idea behind it. I, I so appreciate you sharing your vision. And, and I'm so excited to have you on board. We all are here at, at Grace College and Grace Theological Seminary. Um, I got just a one last couple questions for you. You said you got a book coming out. Mm-hmm. So uh, we got to hear a little bit about the uh, the book that's coming out. Right. It's titled simply Christian Education. And so I was approached by Baker Academic, who happens to sell the leading line of Christian education. Again, that means discipleship, age group ministry, like youth ministry, children's ministry, administration, all those areas. And they are the leading publisher of Christian education textbooks. And they have the highest sales of those. And so they approached me, and because I, as you said, I led both the substantial Christian education ministry and have background in various things, and I led the academic society for the Society of Professors in Christian Education for the last seven years and 12 years, including the uh, the board of directors and so on. And so they invited me. They said, would you like to write this book? And I said, I'll be delighted to. So what I did was, the idea was it was to be an edited book. So I searched out, first of all, I conceptualized what, what needs in this day and age, what do ministers need to know? What areas they need to be competent in? So I identified five categories and five concepts in each category, whether it's age group ministry or educational, you know, educational learning, teaching, et cetera. And so then that led to 25 chapters. I then recruited who I believe would be the 25 leading thought leaders in those areas at two dozen schools across the United States. And I invited them to write for me, and they did. Then I took all those works and edited them myself, you know, page by page through that several hundred page book. And that is now to be released later in 2019. Fantastic. Um, So uh, I just appreciate you, Dr. Cordoza, being with us on the first ever episode of the Grace Story podcast. And I want to point out our music today was written and produced by Dr. Wally Brath, who's the Assistant Professor of Worship Arts here at Grace College. And of course, as always, you can do us a huge favor by rating or commenting on this podcast wherever you retrieved it from, and we'd be so grateful. Until next time, have a great story.